Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff. This is Real Crime Stories. This is part two to yesterday's episode where we covered the uh, Emet Sanguian homicide. Uh, tomorrow happens to be the 15-year anniversary of this case. And we went over the case last night with uh, first-grade detective, retired first-grade detective Sean McTie from Brooklyn North Homicide Squad. And we spoke about the entire investigation. And just to recap it, Emet Sanguin was a 24-year-old John Jay College graduate student who went out to celebrate her 25th birthday, which was happening in, happening in a couple of days, with her friend. And she was at a bar called The Pioneer. And at about 3.30 in, her, in the morning, her friend uh, wanted to go home. And Emet wanted to stay out. And her friend left, and Emmett walked to another bar called The Falls and continued drinking. Uh, at that bar, something went terribly wrong, and uh, she was removed from the bar at a certain location by a bouncer by the name of Daryl Littlejohn. While we know, all know how this ends, um, we, have to t- we want to talk about specifically the forensic evidence in this case. And for that purpose... I've brought on retired NYPD crime scene sergeant, uh, John Pellucci, who has a company called uh, Crime Scene Experts, where he goes all over the country and uh, reinvestigates cases using his crime scene expertise. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Bill. Good to be on. I appreciate it. Well, it's, uh, it's excellent to have you here. Um, you know, one of the things about this case is there was a ton of um, – of evidence that was um, that could only be described as circumstantial evidence, even though it was very powerful physical evidence. Um, one of those things was, um, well, I'll take a look at it now, that Emet Sanguian was found in a lot in Brooklyn, wrapped in, in a blanket. I don't know if you can see that blanket now. Yeah. Uh, and that blanket itself contained a great deal of uh, forensic evidence, fiber evidence. There was even some, um, some, some hairs from a rabbit hair coat, I believe. Uh, yeah. Uh, that that was, a discuss- trove of, uh, it was a treasure trove of trace evidence. So, uh, like tra- so trace evidence is, like you said, it's sort of circumstantial. It's not the smoking gun, you know, but it, but it, it's another piece of the puzzle, right? Um, when we talk about finding evidence on something like that, there's a whole lot that goes on, you know? So uh, it's not just like the CSI shows where they walk up to the body and they see a hair, you know, don't even take a picture and pick it up with tweezers. There's a whole lot of work that goes on to, uh, to analyze something like that. So now a blanket, you know, we have uh, low carts exchange principle right? That uh, every contact leaves a trace. So when you have something uh, like a blanket that would be uh, a really good surface for things to stick to and something that would absorb uh, things, you know, uh, bodily fluids and stuff like that. I believe they found his brother's semen on that blanket. Yes, they they absolutely (laughs) did, which, you know, something you can also uh, chalk that up to being circumstantial evidence. However, 
very, right. very powerful circumstantial yes. evidence. Especially because the brother was deceased, right? Like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So something like that, um, you know, typically, you know, it's going to travel with the body. Uh, you got to think about loss of, uh, uh, you know, trace evidence. So you don't want to start unraveling that whole thing at the at the crime scene there. You know, you know, out in the woods. The uh, so you're going to take a blanket like that. And you're going to bring it up to our laboratory. So I don't know if a lot, a lot of people might not even understand how uh, New York City laboratory analyses work, where we have the NYPD lab that does pretty much everything except for DNA. DNA is performed by the medical examiner's office at the, the Department of Forensic Biology. So uh, I was actually the liaison between the two agencies because you know, we couldn't really talk to each other all that well. Scientists don't want to talk to cops and cops don't want to talk to scientists, right? That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so essentially, so we're going to get, we're, we're going to get that blanket, uh, us, the NYPD, right? And we're going to uh, have it in our laboratory. So now the search is, it's a very big process. When you think about the size of a blanket, think about uh, searching something like that for very small pieces of evidence. So they might start with a magnifier and, and uh, a good light source, uh, you know, regular white light source and sort of search through it and look for trace evidence. You're going to hit it with alternate light sources because you want to be careful that collecting one thing doesn't uh, destroy or, or help to uh, degrade something else. Right. Well, John, that's John. That's what I wanted to ask you, obviously, because that you also now the OCME office of the chief medical examiner is going to get a shot at that blanket after you guys are through with it. You can't spray any chemicals on it or anything. That could kill potential DNA evidence, correct? Uh, it depends on the chemicals. You know, we've uh, actually probably back then, that was, what, what was that case, 2006? Yes, 2006. Yeah, there was still a lot of misnomers out there. DNA analysis wasn't quite as advanced as it was towards the end of my career. Uh, there were a lot of beliefs that, latent print development is destructive to DNA. And probably at some point it was, but uh, until we were able to all communicate, we, you know, and work with the available science, we, uh, a lot of guys in the field were reluctant to process things for fear of destroying DNA. But uh, so, yeah, so we're going to get the blanket, the police department, we're going to get the blanket and we're going to go over it and uh, first see what, what we can see using magnification, using uh, just this, a regular overhead white light. If you ever did that, like uh, in a scene where there's dusty footprints, if you shine your flashlight down at the floor, you can't see anything, right? Right, right. Then you put it at like an oblique angle and stuff just jumps right off the floor at you, right? So you're going to try your white light at different angles with magnification. You're going to uh, want to use an alternate light source, which also is very good for trace evidence, uh, what, what, what you want to do is create contrast, right? And if you look at that blanket, I believe there was a it was a pattern in that blanket too, right? So yeah, I, I mean, I could pu I'll pull it back up and uh, so you could see it again, or our listeners can see it again. Yeah, you see the pattern, you know. So so patterns can hide trace evidence and stuff like that. So alternate light sources are going to create contrast. So there might be some sort of trace evidence, hairs or fibers on that blanket that are blending in with the pattern, they're hard to see with regular white light. But once uh, 
that trace evidence might react differently to, you know, like a regular crime scene search wavelength of 455 nanometers or what we used to call like a black light. You know, when, uh, when you go to the bar and the bouncer looks at your license underneath the a light to see if it's been altered or anything like that or uh or when you walk into a club with like a black shirt on and all of a sudden everybody can see how much dandruff you have you know because, <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean that never so, happened to me <laughs> <laughs> you know john, when, john i just want to point out to you at the foot of that blanket there is a brush which also contained a, a treasure trove of forensic evidence in regards to this case yes Go ahead, John. Yeah, I think his DNA was on that brush, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Again, strong, strong evidence, but circumstantial. Yes, definitely. You know, but uh, when, but oh, so I, so uh, yeah, so we'll go back to the trace evidence now. Uh, so hair can have DNA, right? Yes. Actually, hair you can get mitochondrial DNA from the shaft of a hair. But so what we used to do, the way we used to uh, divvy up the workload was the NYPD lab. So that, they're going to go over that blanket with like uh, tape and try and lift fibers and stuff like that. They're going to come up with hairs and they're going to look at the hair. One of the things they're going to do is an analysis to determine is there root material on the hair or is it like a broken off piece of hair shaft? So root material. Uh, if we have root material, that's essentially skin cells, we can get nuclear DNA from that. But if not, the hair could be ground up and uh, mitochondrial DNA analysis can be done. So mitochondrial is not as uh, specific as a nuclear DNA, but it's it's a DNA that follows the maternal line. Okay. You know, so, so me and my sister have the same mitochondrial DNA. Our kids are not going to have that... Her kids are going to have the same mitochondrial DNA because it starts with our mother. It goes to the two of us. Then when she's a mother, it passes down to her kids. But from me at that point, that strain of mitochondrial DNA is dead for my kids. It's going to be their mother. Okay. Right? So it follows the maternal line. It can be very, very helpful in an investigation, uh, mitochondrial DNA. But aside from DNA analysis, we're in the boat of, like you said, sort of circumstantial. The best result you can get for comparing hairs is microscopically similar, right? You can you can determine uh, some ancestry, you know, like a person's race. I think you would have like mongoloid, caucasoid, and negroid hairs. And uh, you can tell what part of the body the hair came from. But to, to look at it under a microscope and say that's John Pellucci's hair, you can't do that. You can say that the hair from the crime scene and the hair that we took from, from John's head are microscopically similar. If you remember, the FBI just uh, ate a whole lot of crow on their whole history of hair analysis and, and overemphasizing the probative value of hair comparison. Right. Like basically saying, oh, yeah, we got this hair from the crime scene and we took this hair out of the guy's head when he was in custody. And it's him. You know, this hair is his. Right. You can't you can't do that. You know, so uh, therein lies some of the problem. So we John, have Mike John, John, can I just stop you for one second? I just yeah. want to sh shout out to some of our live chatters today. 
uh, Krim Kristen, Melody McAtee, Edward Kelly, Private Eye Podcast, Miss Angel Lap 3233, um, Candy Scarrett, Melody McAtee, Dawn Marie, uh, MC's Audio, Marion Weldon, all the way from South Africa. Amazing. All oh, that's great. Vincent Falsita, Joanne Susan Ray, of course, the Irish Angel, who we all love. And uh, I think I pretty much 12-step woman, pretty much covered everyone. I just had to shout out to them. If you guys aren't subscribed to my YouTube channel for the Police Off the Cuff YouTube channel, please do so. If you want to join our Patreon, I'll go over that later on. John, sorry to interrupt you, but something has no. to pay. Something has to pay the bills, you know. Yeah, hey, Vin, I remember Vincent. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so basically, the the microscopic comparison of two hairs is, like you said, it's circumstantial. It's a it's a building block that we're going to go from. So, the, so the alternate light source being used on that blanket is going to create contrast, make certain fibers stick out that you couldn't see under the white light but also cause bodily fluids to fluoresce, which is how we're going to identify the semen that was collected off of that. So we, we're probably not going to send the whole blanket down to the uh, to the medical examiner's office. We might. I'm not sure if they did or not. But we'd be sending uh, cuttings of the bodily fluids. And if we have hair with root material on it, we're going to send that as well. Right. So, so typically any sexual assault case you know, we would have the sexual assault kit, which would typically have the victim's underwear in there. Uh -huh. And, uh, of course, if it occurred in a house or something, uh, we would take all the bedding and, and all this other stuff. And uh, the ME's office, the first thing that you want, obviously, is a DNA profile, right? So if you're able to find semen in the sexual assault kit, then from that point, you don't get, you don't get any better than that. And we can develop a DNA profile from that. But if, if that fails... That's Tom Forte, yeah. <laughs> well, but, you know, but, John, on the screen right now, for people that are just listening, is yeah. like bags full of evidence. Yeah. Uh, bagged and professionally put in paper bags, not plastic bags, because plastic degrades evidence. But that's just an example of the amount of evidence that was removed. Yeah, th th this is what, what he has in his hands is uh, <clears throat> a mere fraction of what there was <clears throat> we ran through so many runs uh, i can't tell you it was what you know <clears throat> it was a difficult case you know i mean obviously for the family and uh, that it's on television all the time it was it was uh it was hard for us too you know like we when the elevator doors opened up you knew the entire day was going to revolve around uh the Amet st dean case and we're going to have to make room for uh you know as far as personnel for, for people to answer our regular jobs, to go out and catch our, our normal homicides, you know, that uh, weren't, weren't such a big media frenzy as, as this case was, you know. Now, John, one of the things that also for just for our listeners and even some uh, investigators is the, uh, the amount of different crime scenes there were in this case. And, uh, for example, what you see right now is a, a picture of the Falls Bar, yeah. And that also happened to be a crime scene that uh, they were sort of thwarted looking at that crime scene because uh, the owner lied about her ever being there. But till a two days after it occurred, a credit card bill came back to the falls 
and that solidified uh, them knowing that she had, in fact, been there. Yeah, I remember that that uh, image of the falls being on television. As soon as you turn on your television, it was one of the things that you, that you saw during that whole time frame. Uh, yeah, so the falls would be a crime scene more for for you guys, you know, for the for the investigators that are out there looking for video evidence and stuff like that, right? So as far as forensic evidence goes. Uh, Daryl Littlejohn hadn't been developed. He wasn't developed as a suspect for a couple of days, I don't think, right? But uh, so as far as well, they getting- John they had collected um, DNA from every employee in the falls, and he was the only one who refused um, to give it voluntarily. Right. However, his DNA was on file because he had been convicted. He he was arrested. He had seven felony convictions. In his life, he was a career criminal, so his DNA was already on file. Yeah, remember he took a lot of uh, a lot of measures to evade uh, being detected forensically. Uh, I I remember he, <clears throat> this is just out of out of memory, but I think there were he was actually using some sort of an adult diaper on his victims because uh, he had two other victims ahead of that, right? And. Uh, yeah, he was. Uh, he made one victim clean her, wash her mouth out with alcohol and, and mouthwash and stuff like that. I believe he tried to destroy some DNA on uh, a met, didn't he? Uh, with the fingernails or something like that. Yes, underneath the fi- fingernails, he either uh, cleaned underneath them or torn off the fingernails. I hate to even talk about it. this guy was such a savage. Yeah, but, yes. uh, he, definitely, he definitely, he uh, definitely learned a lot from being a career criminal and he knew how to uh, clean up evidence. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But, but some, you know, what's that saying? A little knowledge is a dangerous thing, right? So it sure he, can be. Yeah. He gave one of the victims. So, so two victims lived, right? One was in the van with him and she escaped. She threw herself out of the van. And when she saw that van on television, because we were over there tearing his house apart and the van and all that stuff, right? I believe uh, that's I believe that's the uh, picture of the van because uh, it yeah. was described as having a ladder on the back of it, as you could see that. So again, mm-hmm. there's another crime scene right there. Yeah, that's that's very important. You know that that was a, a very significant uh, scene to where I, I don't think we really got anything out of there. So. What never seems to have hit the news, Bill, uh, and uh, I recall this very specifically, the commanding officer of my unit came up to me, and, you know, he was a very intense guy. He goes, guess what we don't have? I said, what? He goes, we don't have her fucking fingerprints. I said, what do you mean? Apparently, the, the fingerprints that were rolled at the morgue were of no value. And so there was a question of, are we going to go up to the uh, uh, Massachusetts and exhume the body. The wow, fingerprint. That, that, that would have been horrible if you had to do that after all the family had already been through. Right, you know? exactly, exactly. So what, what we did was uh, we went to her apartment and, and developed fingerprints around the apartment and on some personal items, you know, like things that she would have in her purse and only she would be touching, you know, those, those types of uh, items uh, to get 
an exemplar of what her fingerprints might be. So we could maybe uh, compare them to things that were in the van. But there was, without all that, there was some really unique stuff. Uh, there was a, there was a jacket that had uh, blue rabbit hair and mink hairs on it. So, you know, I, I was pretty generous buying my mother Christmas gifts and stuff, but I don't, I don't know if I could afford a blue rabbit hair. Uh, <laughs> I don't jacket. know if, if blue rabbits exist. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, if they hold their breath, I heard, <laughs> before you kill them, right? Oh, so, this is some bad joking. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, John, well, let me, John, let me just stop you for one second. Yeah. Before you referred to Locard's theory of exchange, and for anyone who's not a criminal justice major or know about evidence, that means when two bodies come in contact, they will each leave something from each other on the other. And that's the theory of exchange, that if I, if I had a fight with you, chances are I might leave one of my hair fibers on you, possibly blood if you were lucky enough to get a good shot in on me, right? And that that's a theory of exchange, and that's exchange of evidence. Yeah, right, low cards exchange uh, principle. So every every contact leaves a trace. That's that's the the uh, the theory. What, what? Yeah, that's what what his uh, principle was. So if you, I'm here. I, I walk into my office. I sit down in this chair. I'm leaving some of me on the chair, and I'm taking some of the chair with me when I leave. You know, so these are the types of things that happen. It doesn't have to be. Uh, doesn't even have to be anything as intense as a fight. You know, just uh, just any kind of casual contact and that stuff. And even, you know, especially me, I'm I'm leaving hair every everywhere these days. You know, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's because you're old. You do your hair's just peeling <laughs> off. You know, so yeah. Uh, Right. So, so now, so we had that blanket, which had just very unique stuff. I mean, the brother, the brother's semen on the jacket. We had, uh, we had, uh, I believe there was, uh, let's see, there was hair that was linked to his mother that was on the blanket. Um, then there was the, the hair, uh, the unique hairs from the, the blue rabbit and the mink combined. And I, I think that jacket was recovered somewhere as well. So now here we have the source. Of, of this hair evidence is this jacket, right? Uh, um, yeah. And then there was another, so she was, uh, she was restrained with zip ties, right? And uh, like I said, our, our laboratory did everything pretty much except DNA, right? right. Mm -hmm. So we had a latent print examiner looking at the flex cuffs, Right. That, that's the analysis that we were going for was a, a latent print development. And he saw like a like a the size of a pinhead uh, speck of blood that was in the uh, I, I believe in the area where you secure the cut. Where, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it was it was described by uh, Detective uh, McTie as in uh, by the locking device where the right. two, uh, that's where the speck of blood was recovered. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that huge find, right? So that gets sent out, and then there's that uh, there's that DNA there. Of course, uh, even though he's in the system, it's it's not an instant thing to to upload a DNA sample into the CODIS databases. You know, you you want to have uh, it, something like like 
a zip tie that's on a, a deceased homicide victim. That's pretty much uh, something that we could upload right away because who else was touching that? Right. And, uh, you know, you know, the people who were who were around it, the detective investigators, the pathologists and all that are trained to not cross, not, not contaminate evidence with their DNA. Right. And plus it's blood. So who's who's bleeding at the scenes? We wear gloves and right. stuff like that. So uh, but the CODIS uploads. So now so now you develop a DNA profile from this blood. It still has to go into the CODIS database. Right. So the CODIS database has. Two sides to it. We have unknown crime scene, crime scene samples, which that blood would qualify as. That's an unknown crime scene sample. We have DNA. Whose is it? We don't know. Then we have the convicted offender database. So you upload the unknown crime scene sample, and it searches against the convicted offender database. And with his history, as you said, he's, he's in there. But, of course, the, the uploads aren't done as soon as we get a DNA profile. right? They were done at intervals. So I think it was weekly or so that you would upload these these profiles. So, John, um, is it easier to get a forensic unknown crime scene DNA compared against a live exemplar? Is it that much easier and much quicker than going through CODIS? Uh, yeah, actually, they, and, and they, you know, they recommend that. We used to, because abandonment DNA, uh, we, could, we could get that and have it analyzed. If you're a suspect... Right. I, I can get a cigarette from you. I can get some gum for you. I'm sure you've done it do dozens of times. You right. Know, offer the guy a soda. The guy drinks it. Now we have his DNA that we could do a one to one comparison right in the laboratory because it's not searching a database. Right. Uh, but what it also searches is unknown crime scene sample to unknown crime scene sample. Right. So uh, we might not know who it is, but we know that this DNA profile, this person was also at this scene and this scene and this scene, you know? Right. Okay. So, so we're starting to establish a, a pattern and uh, sometimes it's cops. Like we we get that a lot with guns, you know, some of these gun units where, where you get a DNA profile from, uh, you know, that's matching from all these unknown, uh, you know, from cases that could not possibly be related. So then I would get a phone call from the ME's office and they'd say, John, can you find out who was working on these these gun collars and see if they'll give us a DNA sample so we can eliminate them and, and close out this pattern that we're developing from all these uh, <clears throat> unknown crime scene profiles matching each other. Right. You know? So, yeah, so he's in the database, but then of course, you know, it's, it, it's not an instant upload. There is a way to do a keyboard search if, you know, like a, for, for an emergency, something like this might qualify, uh, you know, it's a, an emergency being where somebody else is, uh, you know, the, the danger continues or there's danger, risk of flight or whatever, you know. Right, okay. You can't, you can't do it on every single case, you know. It's, uh, it's just not done like well, that. Well, John, when you talk about elimination DNA, I remember there was a crime scene um, and uh, G Detective John Savino from, from Manhattan Special Victims was the case detective. And it was an attempted uh, murder, but a rape with an attempted murder. And a couple of the detectives uh, violating crime scene protocol or at least one of them smoked a cigarette and put it out in the ashtray in the crime scene. Uh -huh. So Savino being a very uh, thorough detective had every single one of those butts tested as elimination because at, at a trial that he was foreseeing in the future, 
Yeah. They could say, how do you know whoever smoked those cigarette butts didn't do this crime and not my client? Exactly. So it's a huge that, loophole for the defense. And that's how he uncovered that a detective from Nightwatch had smoked a cigarette and put it out in the ashtray. Wow. Big no-no. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah, if you read, like, because I read some of the older guides, like, you know, the NIJ had put out a guide years ago and stuff like that. And a lot of it talks about, you know, don't use the telephone at crime scenes. So, but remember that, of course, when, you know, when we came on, it was, that's all there was, was a landline, you know. So right, if, a guy's, right. if a guy's got to sit on the body, remember how long it took for the morgue to come and get the body? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, uh, right. So, because uh, we had, what, like over 2,000 homicides a year, you know. So uh, uh, these guys would be sitting in an apartment, hey, maybe make a phone call, you know, or uh, make a sandwich or something like that. <laughs> like, ah, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> So, um, so yeah, those are the types of things that can, can contaminate the case. There's that's a, uh, I believe, a picture from um, one of the, the rape cases that he was. Oh no, I'm sorry. This this might be actually be the homicide. So this was a um, a court a drawing of it, uh, not not a live picture that's showing on the screen. Yeah, I'm gonna see John if I could pull up this video and. Uh, okay. Show this video to uh... New York City nightclub bouncer to the 2006 murder of a 24-year-old grad student. Emet Sengian left this Manhattan bar early on the morning of February 24, 2006. The next morning, her nude body was found in a desolate section of Brooklyn. Her mouth was stuffed with a white sock and taped shut, her hands bound behind her back with a plastic tie. At Monday's opening of a rape and murder trial, prosecutors argued DNA evidence found on the plastic tie links 41-year-old Daryl Littlejohn to the killing. Daryl Littlejohn's Blood, a little bit of skin that was on that tip tie. They say he escorted Sanguillan out of the bar, and they say his cell phone was used in the area near where the body was dumped the day after the killing. Little John's lawyer says her client was framed. She points the finger at a politically connected witness who was also in the bar that night. Sophia Manos, The Associated Press. What they were referring to in that was um, Danny Dorian. So his his lying to the police had other ramifications with the case was that it led the defense uh, to create a smokescreen that he was an actual suspect to it instead of uh, Daryl Littlejohn. Right. You know, and when you hear some of the things, uh, uh, a sock was stuck inside her mouth, that I would assume was recovered also. Uh, and that could also be a treasure trove of forensic evidence in regards to the crime scene. Absolutely, sure. The uh, you know, first of all, the transfer of skin cells, uh, just the action of putting the sock in her mouth, and if the sock was worn, it's going to be uh, quite a significant quantity of skin cells on it. You know, socks could be something that was bled on at some point. You know, so uh, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot to go with on that. Yeah, so w w talk about some of the other uh, physical evidence that came back that was, again, circumstantial, but uh, very powerful uh, during the trial. Yeah, so, uh, so so the blood, I wouldn't call that circumstantial. You know, that's, that's a biometric evidence. It's not, it's not something that, like, because uh, when you think about it, uh, she's in the club. She's with Little John. So far, we know that 
and that's before anything happened to her, right? Right. Could there be some sort of an argument that that's when trace evidence was being transferred between the two of them, right? So was the trace evidence even on the blanket, right? Was it little John, you know, says, hey, I walked her down the street. She fell. I picked her up, you know, uh, probably something transferred at that point, which is a very that, – that's a very good argument, you know? Well, that's why I'm saying uh... – it's circumstantial, yet it's very powerful, powerful, very powerful circumstantial evidence. And, you know, if someone – you see someone run out of a building and and they're booking up the street and then you go in the building and you see someone dead, that doesn't mean they did it. But that's pretty circumstantial evidence that the way they were running out of there leads right. you to believe that that – but, again, circumstantial, unless there's yeah. other evidence connecting that person to uh, the fictitious homicide I just spoke about, Right. Right, exactly. And, and that, that's the whole thing is, uh, you know, like we're used to watching television shows where, where something happens, it's, it's a smoking gun and this guy's done, you know, case closed kind of thing. I, I think uh, the closest thing to that is is the blood on the zip tie because uh, that, that's just super powerful evidence. But when, you know, so the unique, the unique hairs from the jacket, blue rabbit and mink combination, right? Uh, you can get all kinds of people involved in this thing. You could, you could run it. You know, uh, the FBI has actually uh, garment analysts. You know, to that could tell you about the manufacturer of this garment and how many were actually made. You know, those are the types of things. And I'm sure you've been involved in something like that where you have to. You, you call somewhere in Wyoming and, and and they say, oh yeah, we made 15 of those things. And uh, right. You know, yeah. I'm, I think one went to New York or whatever. You know, so it's uh, it it can just keep going on and on and. Well, John, a very, very, unique. very, very powerful evidence that's not, uh, it's not the venue of the crime scene unit is telephone evidence, cell phone tower evidence, even evidence in regards to Emmett's phone that she had received a telephone call from her friend Claire at, I think it was 0330 hours. So that sort of gives them a timeline of, you know, when she was still alive. I think even as Late as 0350, uh, she had received a call on her phone. And then uh, somewhere, I believe, around 0400, which is when, uh, by law, bars in New York City are required to close. Not that that means anything, because they could still stay open. But that was when I was determined that uh, I believe the owner, Danny Dorian, had Daryl Littlejohn remove her uh, or escort her. I'm sure that was the words he used. Right. Escort, escort her from the bar. Mm -hmm. So but anywhere between 0350 and 400 is when something very bad happened. Did she get into Daryl Littlejohn's van voluntarily, or did he force her into that van under the guise of "I'll you know I'll give you a ride home" type thing? Because she was apparently uh, had a few too a few too many drinks. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's uh, something that only two people know and, uh, you know, or, or knew. And now only one person knows the answer to that question about whether or not she's forced into the van. Uh, his his M.O. was typically uh, to handcuff his victims. You know, uh, I, I think they had had some sort of an argument because she she was a criminal justice student as well. Well, she yeah, she was going for her master's degree. Yeah. 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 At John Jay. Right. I think was she looking at a, at, at a federal uh, agency or something like that? I know she had uh, 
I think she had aspirations of that. In fact, mm -hmm. th this uh, tomorrow, uh, which is the 25th, February 25th, is the 15th year anniversary of Emet's, uh, Emet's death. And, um, you know, one of the things, when we work on homicides and we talk about these things, it's so easy to uh, lose sight of this. This is a real person, you know. Yeah. This is a, this. She had a real family, and she um, had people that loved her. And when when I spoke to um, Sean McTie last night, we continuously praised the work of uh, Brooklyn North Homicide, the Seven Five Squad, all the detectives that worked this, all the specially specialized units, crime scene. TARU, which for our listeners stands for Te Technical Assistance Response Unit. They do all the telephone work. And the outstanding um, work they did on this case that allowed a career criminal who was a real savage, that's the only way to put it, he was a savage, uh, to be put away for the rest of his life. And hopefully he'll never, ever, ever see the light of day, this guy. Yeah, this was a guy that had to be stopped, you know, Bill. Was, uh, uh, and then that's before we even knew about the, the previous two uh, victims, right? So now is, is he is he escalating to the point? I mean, I'm not, you know, say a, a profiler or anything like that, you know, but is, it, is he escalating to the point now where he's, he's just not going to leave any more victims alive, right? Because he had two. That, that saw him, they saw his van. Uh, one jumped out of a moving van to get away from the guy. I think well, he's also... he had a very specific MO. He impersonated uh, a police officer. Uh, he had a very specific signature, you know, in the way he conducted his sexual crimes. So, yeah, he was... A, and he did two or more. He's a serial rapist, you know? Yeah. Besides being a, uh, a career criminal with... I believe he had seven violent felonies. When he was up for a parole hearing, he refused to cooperate. So they said he would not parole. And this guy, he's an angry, dangerous, dangerous guy. Two months uh, after that, he maxed out and he was automatically released. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so these, yeah, these are, these are the type of people that we're going to start seeing out there again. Because yeah, I know that's which is very scary, you know. Yep. Yeah, that's a whole nother arena, you know. But uh yeah, this case it's it's so good that he's not on the street anymore, you know. This he's not gonna stop. A guy like that's not gonna stop. But and so he took all these efforts to uh to evade being detected, right? Like uh do doing things to her body to, so that to, to hide DNA with the previous victim causing her to, to wash her mouth out. But then he does stupid things. Like he gives her a used a, a t-shirt that was worn by his mother. So his yeah. mother's DNA, his mother's DNA was actually very probative. Like, uh, you know, it, it was very helpful in this case. Uh, and then one of them, one of those victims, he handcuffed prior to a victim prior to a met. Yes, and I think DNA was recovered off of those handcuffs, you know. So, but now you have to you have to look at it this way: when when they go into a courtroom, and they give you a laundry list of this forensic evidence uh, that is going to be presented to the jury and put this case together against this guy, 
that quite often is just the tip of the iceberg for everything that was collected, everything that was analyzed in this case. I remember uh, at that time, actually, that was not too long after I had that motorcycle wreck. I think I was on like, uh, I was I was the admin guy, you know, uh-huh. in, uh, in, in crime scene for a little while, right? And uh, so I wasn't going out to any of these runs. And it was run after run after run. Like one team would come back, they'd send another team out. We're going to go do this one now. We're going to do, uh, you know, guys, uh, everything in his house was fair game. You know, they were, uh, right? Look, look at this. These are the types of things that are happening, right? His entire wardrobe is being taken. And we're, we're you know, so it, it's not just the fact that, so think about how this is, right? Piles and piles of evidence. Each piece of evidence has to have an identifier. Each piece of evidence has to be photographed several times, right? It, we have to photograph where we got it from and then narrow in. On, here's, the, here's the room. Here's the closet. Here's the jacket, right? Right, right. And then here's the jacket off the hanger on the paper that we're wrapping the jacket up. Here's the back of the jacket. I, I mean, think about it. Like uh, his entire wardrobe. We, we took from him. And then we also had to go through her house and, and get things there to help identify her because of mistakes that were made. Right. You know? so, well, uh, you know something, John, one of the things in the professionalism of uh, the crime scene unit, the crime scene detectives in regards to crime scene integrity and making sure that everything is done correctly because that's how lawyers, defense lawyers, they create doubt when there are mistakes made or if there's shoddy they love that word shoddy. Yeah. If there's shoddy work done and they'll make the detectives look like boobs. And that's why the professionalism and, and the crime scene integrity is so, so important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's why these procedures are, are like that, you know. Uh, and, and then when you think about it, while you're working on this case right here, then you, you're you going to come back and catch more cases, different cases. And then by the time this first one goes to trial, how many hundreds of cases have you done since then, right? Can, you know, that, that that's another reason why you document everything. So, you know, start from the general to the specific. And uh, that way you put things in context, you know. So if, if those bags of evidence that we saw Detective Forte taking out of the residence, right, uh, if all they did was go in there and throw everything in a bag, then the question is, where did this come from? You know, that opens up the door because they did try to say that the, some of that evidence was planted, right? That the police planted yeah, this of evidence course, on yeah, of course, like yeah. Yep. All right. So now, if if we don't if we don't go through this very meticulous process, very time consuming process uh, of showing where we got this from, then that that opens the door. I, as a juror, I might think like, yeah, you know, they're asking this detective, where did you get the, that pair of pants from? You know, that had the victim's saliva on it. Where, where, where did you get those from? Right. Well, they, they were in the house, you know. Well, where in the house were they? Uh, you know, I think it was a bedroom, you know. That's why it's like, you want to know where they were? Okay, this was run number, you know, 06 slash 457 double A, right? Because there were so many runs that, that were done. And uh, and here's the photos. Here's the outside of the house. Here's the front hallway. Here's the door. Here's the bedroom. Here's the bedroom. The closet's open. There's the jacket. There's the pictures of the jacket. We covered the jacket. We took we took our photos with the jacket laying on the paper. That's you know to 
uh, avoid losing trace evidence and stuff like that. So, so that way we can say, you know, we'd have to be masterminds to frame this guy, you know, right, to, right. Oh, and, and all these people that were here would have to be in on it, including the people in the team with the TV cameras outside, right. because they're seeing us go in and then they're seeing us come out. And you see, if you look at those bags, right, you can get identifiers off of them. They have writing on them. It's got, uh, you know, every, every piece of evidence has a story to it. Uh, not just what happened when it was being worn or whatever, whatever its relationship to the incident is. It also has a story with the detective who, who collected it, who identified it, said, this is evidence. We're going to want this. This is how I'm going to document it. Then he gets it and it goes to the lab. Now somebody in the lab gets it. They, they open the bag in a different location from where it was sealed before, you know, take this thing out. Oh, I'm going to take it, photograph it. This is how I got it. This is the markings on the bag. Right. And then he puts it back in the bag and seals it up and sends it to, to the forensic biology department. And they go through the same thing. You know, it's very, well, you know, uh, John, also the, the jury is very impressed with the professionalism. And yeah. when, when a defense attorney tries to impeach the integrity and the professionalism of a crime scene detective and everything was done crossing T's and dotting I's, the jury doesn't buy it, you know, because they did everything by the book. You know, right. Yeah, that he's, he's slamming into a brick wall if he wants to, to say that all this stuff is is planted, you know. Well, if there was a piece of smoking gun evidence in this case, it was that speck of blood on the flex cuffs that uh, Emmett Sanguian had on that belonged to Daryl Littlejohn. I mean, how yeah. could anyone explain how that got there? Exactly. Exactly. You know? And I think I think it's location, uh, you know, because. Flex cuffs have, uh, they have like a metal tooth in there, right? If you ever look at them really closely, most of them do. And, and that metal tooth is actually has value uh, in terms of having unique characteristics like from tool marks and stuff like that. So they, that's a whole other thing. And, you know, those things are cut on a machine, you know, and, and you can sort of, you know, maybe find out the manufacturer, find out. So if we know that, that uh, you know, there's these certain tool marks on it, right? as a tool that's making the marks cuts more and more pieces, it changes a little bit. So that the markings are unique, but now if we go to your house and we find like similar, uh, Flex, yeah, flex cuffs, absolutely. Flex cuffs, yeah, with, with like the, with, with the same tooth, with the, like very similar markings on it and stuff like that. So those are the types of things that you're looking for. So you're not just going to take this, this zip tie and, uh, and, and put it into a fuming chamber and uh, you know that you want to you want to do an analysis of it. you want to look at it and that's what this guy did he did a fantastic job and uh he identified this very small speck of blood and i believe it was in a location that you know there's like a little bit of a well where you put the the end of the zip tie and then you pull it through right um so say he took the time to wipe these cuffs off that's an area that he missed and, uh, you know, because who knows, like, th there's a little speck of blood. Where, where else? That, that's the only blood that was found. So, so uh, you know, was there a bleeding injury where he did things to hide more of the blood, you know? Right. Uh, so, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he cleaned up the crime scene, which uh, yeah. makes yeah. the conduct of Danny Dorian even more egregious that he allowed him to do this. I'd just like to uh, give an opportunity from someone or some people in our live chat to ask you a question uh, in regards to this case. And anyone wants to ask a question, just uh, 
text it into the live chat and we can ask, uh, you can stump the professor. You can st- uh, stump the uh, CSI expert. See if, uh, see if maybe he doesn't know something that, uh, you, that you know, you know. No, there's no questions yet, so we'll just keep talking. But this was uh, this case was amazing. And uh, last night, um, Sean McTie also spoke about they were surveilling Daryl Littlejohn. And one night, he went to get into the subway. He was he stopped taking his van because he realized his van was a treasure trove of forensic evidence. Mm-hmm. So they stopped him going down into the subway, and they asked him. What trains are you taking? And he had no clue of how to get home by train, which just showed he never, ever took the train before. And this was another, you know, another piece, circumstantial evidence, but pretty damn strong piece of uh, uh, circumstantial evidence. Oh, cheated no more. You asked the question. Let me see. Okay. Let me see if I can find your uh, previous question. All right. The system fails time and time again. Is there an actual list of how many rapists and killers have destroyed people's lives after being released? That's a good question. That That's something I, I wouldn't know. I, uh, yeah, that's something I don't know too much about. Those, those are usually pretty newsworthy, you know, when, when somebody's released and then uh, they go out and do and, and re-offend in, in a similar manner to what they were serving time for. You know, it's a terrible thing. I think... Like you said, the way, uh, at least in New York and several other states, we're going to see a lot more recidivism and we're going to see a lot, just a lot of offenders that are, are not going to be incarcerated, you know. John, there's another question from MC's Audio. Uh, how long would you say the investigative process of collecting evidence takes? TV doesn't do it justice. That's a great point. You know, it's... Uh, well, I'll give you an example. I had a a, a teacher, right, um, who who was a very good forensic guy, but he was in the world of academia. But he knew how to he knew how to develop latent blood, develop fingerprints. He knew about DNA. That was he was pretty much a scientist, you know. And uh, he kept saying, "If you ever get a crime scene, I want to go with you." If you ever, but but at this point in my life, I don't get really get a live crime scene, you know. So then I get a phone call from somebody who says, hey, look, you know, this case is not being investigated and the family wants it investigated. Would you come and process this scene? I said, sure. So I called this guy up. I said, look, I got a scene. You want to go? He goes, oh, man, please. I want to go. I want to go. I said, all right. So we go out there. Uh, we left. It was probably about a two-hour drive. We, we left early in the morning. It was one of those days, like five degrees outside, freezing cold day, you know. These are the things you don't think about, too, right? That the, the ambient conditions can make things take longer. You know, your equipment might not function if there's too much heat, too much cold. You know, you have, uh, you know, all your, your cameras sitting in the cold like that or whatever. So, uh, you know, trying to take pictures outside <laughs> where your fingers don't hardly work. So, so we're at it all day. We're taking swabs. We're taking photographs. We're documenting things. Things have to be, you know, we, before you get to the point of actually collecting it, you got to put it into its context, right? So now it's going to be about four o'clock. He goes, uh, he goes, oh, I'm, you know, I have to be home by dinner, right? We've we've been on this crime scene like six, seven hours already. He goes, yeah, I got to get home by dinner. I said, you want to be a crime scene investigator? 
not going home for dinner. <laughs> there is you no know? dinner. <laughs> There's no dinner. What are you talking about, right? So, like, a couple hours later, he starts getting, like, cranky, you know? <laughs> He's like, oh, you know, uh, my wife's going to kill me. I'm like, dude. He's like, how long? How much longer do you think we have? And I said, between one and five more hours. You know, it, we're still, you know, moving through this thing, you know, systematically. So, yeah, that, that, that's a great point. You know, on television, everything happens fast. They go right to the to the key piece of evidence, and uh, they collect it without doing putting it in, in, in the context. You know, and that, that's really important. And it's it's important for anything, like a, a bullet hole in a car. If you see a, 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 you know, picture far, not even like an overall, but like from a distance of a car, and then the next picture is a close-up of a bullet hole, and you can't see where on the car that bullet hole is, you know, you're going to want to take a picture of the car, fill the frame with the car, then take a picture of the door where the bullet hole is, and then take a picture, you know, of, of the bullet hole, and maybe even a, a more in-depth one. So, so these are the types of things that you have to do to really narrow down on it. And, uh, yeah, it's it, – it is a time-consuming process, uh, and we had—I've uh, heard you say nice things about the unit. We had some of the, really the best detectives uh, working for us. It was such a pleasure to have some of these. John, John, you know something? It's funny, and just to listen to you talk, I can tell, and I know—well, I know you, but I could tell even if I didn't know you—that you're a very patient. You're a patient guy. And that's probably a requirement to be a crime scene investigator because I am not patient. I would be, I would be, I would be the most horrible crime scene detective there could be because I'm an impatient guy by nature. So right. I'm better off outside of the crime scene going after the perps. There's a couple more questions. I just want because we'll get them quick. Someone asked in the chat, "Can you get DNA from sweat?" I said yes. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, essentially it's going to have skin cells on it and stuff like that, so sure. Okay, and one more. This is the last question by Vincent Falsita. John, what evidence was taken from the perp's van? I thought I remember hearing that the victim's blood was found in the van. Is that correct? Yeah, big shout-out to, to Vinny, yeah. Uh, that I don't recall. I, I don't recall what was, what was in the van. I remember uh, – that I, I think there were actually two vans for some reason. I think yes, there was a, there was a, a mini van, and then there was the the blue one. You know, so uh, they might have both been blue. I I don't, I don't remember exactly, but uh, you know, I I honestly don't recall what 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 we got out of the van. Um, but there was trace evidence in the van that linked him at Sangian to that haven't been in the van, correct? I don't recall. I really okay. don't recall. Yeah. All right. I, don't, I don't want you to lie. You're on the stand. You're under oath. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the police off the cuff, real crime stories. This is just like being under oath. So I'm glad that's right. you, you that's didn't right. recall. You didn't make it up. That, that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's perfect. You know? Yeah. Sorry, man. I really don't. I, I don't recall uh, the band. Like I remember what we were looking for her fingerprints in there. And of course we didn't have the exemplars to, to go with, you know, cause that would, uh, that would be helpful. You know, and, and uh, of, of course, some of that could be explained away. Like we'll go back into the same the same scenario. Right. He he's in contact with her. So he's got some of her on him. She's got some of him on her. He could even go into his van and tr and, you know, do a secondary transfer of trace evidence from her to his van. You know, so these types of things are a little bit uh, tricky. Now, of course, if you have bodily fluids in the van, if you have blood and things like that. That's that's a whole nother 
uh, avenue, you know. But uh, but it, it makes it more difficult when there was what what we call legitimate access, right? So if I'm a regular at your house, I go over there and I, I drink all the beer in your refrigerator every Friday night, and then one day, you know, you know, a little stuck for cash. So I, hey, you know, Bill, he, I know he leaves that back door open, you know. <laughs> so so I go in there and I rob your house, right? Now, now you start pulling my fingerprints in, uh, out of areas, you know, DNA and stuff like that. Uh, that could be explained away, right? Yeah, no, yeah, I'm over at his house every Friday. So that's what they call legitimate access. So, so the fact that she walks into a bar where he's essentially in control of part of that environment and he's actually escorting her, now we have some sort of, uh, of a transfer that can legitimately occur without him having committed any sort of a crime against her you know so that john uh someone miss angela um uh p3233 there were carpet fibers on the on the blanket so i don't know if they um yes. recovered but they absolutely recovered so you're correct they were recovered on the blanket and uh ed kelly said bill tell john he can consult his report to refresh his memory but i don't <laughs> think i don't think he has <laughs> he has any of his crime scene reports in front of him right now He's got a pretty damn good memory, though, right? Right. Yeah, like I said, I, I didn't go to any of the scenes either. You know, I mean, I was uh, I was behind the scene. I was still I, I was essentially uh, trying to run our day, the day to day operations of the unit outside of the uh, Sanguine case. You know, because it was uh, it, it was consuming the whole unit. You know, uh, like like I believe Sean said, you know, the men and women go out and they do their best every single day. You know, every there's nobody, nobody's death is more significant than anybody else's, you know, when they when, when somebody's murdered. Uh, what happens is the department decides how, how much of our resources are going to be spent on, on this case versus this case, you know, like the Libby Kletsky case. You remember that case? Uh, that was the Hasidic Jewish boy that was yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. kidnapped off the street. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you must have been, you know, running shorthanded if uh, and we took detectives from the entire city for essentially a closed case. But see, so I met St. was a, a beautiful girl. She was in a bar in Manhattan. These are the types of things that, that could, uh, you know, is it was a brutal, uh, uh, brutal killing. Uh, it's got flavor for the media you know it's got it, you know so, so what what sells right fear sells right uh sex sells crime sells murder sells all that kind of, those things sell papers and and uh, and ads and like i said we, you couldn't turn your television on without seeing that photograph either of her or of the falls bar you know or of the scene not not the body and you know uh wrapped up in the in the blanket but yeah, that, that, that photograph was all over the newspaper, you know. And uh, so, of course, the department is wanting to make a uh, make a collar, you know, to, to rush this whole thing. And one of the best places to devote resources is to the forensic investigation of it all, you know. So it wasn't just, the, you know, the, the great detectives out there in the field identifying evidence properly documenting the evidence, collecting the evidence, bringing it back, uh, you know, turning it over to the, uh, to the investigators and, and uh, having our laboratory analysis, uh, you know, our laboratory then would, would get 
piles and piles of stuff, you know. Uh, it, it's such a collaborative effort. So I need uh, you as a detective, uh, as a squad boss, I need to stay in touch with you. Like, what do you got? Oh, we got video of this. We got this blue van. We got, okay, okay yeah. So we got these components of the crime scene, you know. Uh, we have a cell phone that, that took this person over to this location. Okay, that's good. We have his house, you know, and we have her cell phone at his house. Great. We got a crime scene over there. You know, we got, so we're starting. We need your efforts to, uh, to sort of steer where our efforts are going to be, you know, most stringently applied. We're going to go there, do our best. Then it goes on from there. It goes to the laboratory, and these guys end up with with a pile of stuff, and they have to sort through it. And, and uh, you know, we're more of a on, on a, a macro level, you know, crime scene. Even though we get we get deep into the little tiny details, it gets even smaller than that, you know. And you get into the the picograms of DNA evidence, right? It's, so it's uh, something something this big boils down to something you can't even see. Uh, and then we have something that identifies our suspect. So it's a it's an it's an incredible process. There were uh, tons and tons of resources devoted to this case. That that much I recall. Like I said, I did I did not go to any of the of the crime scenes. I was I was running things uh, our daily operations. But of course, I knew who was going out. I could see every day how many more runs we had done on on this particular case. It just it was run after run after run. I said, okay, well, where are they now? What are they doing now? Now we're in her apartment. You know, we're trying to get some stuff uh, to, to identify her and whatever could we could find of her and her apartment in his van or his apartment. You know, so th these are all things that have to be put together. It's just John, uh, last, last question from our, um, our, our live chat. By cheated no more. I love I love your uh, tag, your tag name, cheated no more. I love it. I'd like to know the backstory to that. Anyway, I'm not sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> we might have a case coming. That's out right. Yeah. If they reopen a case years later, do they get a new budget amount to work with? I mean, I, I could probably answer that myself. You know, a homicide is never closed. It's it's open until an arrest is made. There's no statute of limitations. But believe you me, this defund the police thing is having a big effect on investigations and on the quality of police work. Because when detectives go to work, you know, they'll work as long as you want them to. They'll stay there for three days. But once you tell them you're not getting paid, guess what? See you. They're going home. <laughs> they're going yeah. home because this they didn't sign up to be a volunteer. This is their profession. And now from what I hear, even from NYPD current detectives, and all police officers, they're cutting back overtime. They're taking, yeah. they're not letting them work overtime. So that will have a real effect on the quality of the uh, the work they do. Well, yeah, the harm, the harm in that, uh, from from what I saw as a, as a crime scene unit supervisor, and, and we had, you know, we had guys that were high in overtime. You know, guys, remember the, the list, like the top five hundred and. You know, if one of your guys made that list, it was like, ah, you better not make that list again, you know. But there were just guys that, that you know, this stuff takes time, you know. And uh, You know, John, I had guys, and allegedly they were supposed to get 40 hours a month. Right. I had guys uh, that would grab their 40 in the first week. And, yeah. and I would be like, why did you do that? Now I can't use you. So, of right. course, after they had their 40, you'd get a double murder, and you had to send them home. 
It's, right. it's like it's like leaving food out for a dog that doesn't know when to stop eating. You know what I mean? That's right. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, but but imagine a way to doing it now. Uh, well, I I've seen this done. I don't know if this is what they're doing now, but in the middle of a scene, and this is this has been done, and it was not a pretty deal. There there was a detective that the boss said, "You're not making any overtime. You go home." In the middle of him, uh, he hadn't even he, he took his overall photos. He identified evidence. He put some placards out. I think he was starting to collect stuff. So I guess what? Go home now. Yeah, John, you come in. You finish this. You know, you're you're walking in cold. So now now a new guy. Think about how, what a waste that is, right? So so you're taking this fresh guy <clears throat> that has maybe no knowledge at all about this crime scene. And to save some money, you're going to spend three or four hours getting him up to speed because he's on straight time. Right. And then once he gets rolling, oh, you, you know what? Guess what? You're out. Now, yeah, Steve, come here. You know, someone who's not getting paid to do it doesn't have the same passion to yeah. do it as yeah. the guy who is on overtime. And that's... Tell you, it, right. And you know there were people that did not want overtime. You know, yeah. there, there, there were people that didn't want it. And there were people that would, you know, Slap their grandma for for four hours, you know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's a hundred percent true, you know. Yeah, that. yeah, you know. But so so it's, it's very it's a very difficult thing to balance anyway. But but when people are told, even if I'm a guy that doesn't want overtime, and you say, "Guess what? You're not getting any overtime." Now I'm going to start thinking, like, "Boy, you know, maybe I want that." You know, so, <laughs> so you always so, but, want what you can't have. That's for that's sure, right. right. Yeah, and and it, and, and and when you, you you're killing morale. You know, you're you're really hurting morale by doing this, uh, but by by telling people, you know, thanks for the thanks for the good work you just did. Now you you know how it is when you when you what was the expression grow legs when something starts to grow legs and you really you're on a roll and then all of a sudden somebody says okay next you're out you know yeah this, yeah. this guy's that's in. that's that's a real motivator you know John we're actually at over an hour uh, on this show and. I tell you something, every time I talk to you, I learn something from you about evidence and about the collection of evidence. And uh, you're a real, uh, you're a gem, man, to have. I mean, I don't know if I want to hang out with you drinking because I know you, you, you're probably talking about the same stuff when you go out drinking, you know? And I'm like, that's, I want to put that to bed when I go out drinking. But uh, I mean, well, you, you just don't want to eat in a good restaurant with, with a crime scene guy. That's you know, right. No, no, not at all. I don't want to be with a crime scene guy in a restaurant for sure. But yeah. you, do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, no, not, nothing, nothing in particular, you know, um, just staying busy with, with my casework. Uh, I'm, I love everything you're doing. It's fantastic. Well, it's thank really you so fantastic. much. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to do this show besides the police off the cuff. I'm trying to do the real crime episodes because it seems there's a lot of fans out there of this. And I see a lot of people doing it that uh, don't necessarily have the background uh, in doing this that, that we have, you know? Right. And right. Uh, especially people in the broadcast media. They just keep repeating the same stuff over and over again. It's amazing. It's and and they'll use the same little clip or they'll use a photo that they they zoom in on like and you're like I've seen that photo five times already, but they show it from a different angle. It's like they're not they're not teaching you anything because well, how can you? How can well, you know, there's you tons know? there's tons of shows on the Gilgo Beach murders. Oh, and really? There's, there's no new information, so they yeah. just keep 
reshuffling the deck and saying yeah. the same things or creating, you know, some more rumors on something else that they don't know. But you know something? Look, I I have great uh, guests. I have you, Barbara Butcher. Yeah. Uh, yesterday, Sean McTie. I got a Hall yeah. of Fame of guests, you know? Yes. And I'll work as hard as I have to to get this show and pick up the audience and everything. But you people that came in the live chat today, thank you so much. I want to thank yes. Duty Ron. A lot of you guys are his fans. And um, thank you so much for supporting this show. Uh, please, if you're not a subscriber to my YouTube, please subscribe. Uh, I had the Patreon um, banner up for a second. I'll put it back up. That's our Patreon link. Uh, we have three tiers, $7 a month. You called the bucket. $9 a month, you can polish my rack. And uh, for $11 a month, you get to dip them in butter. And what? It, so we have a sense of humor with everything we do, even though this is a serious subject matter. Yeah, it's uh, important. One of the things I want to also say is I, I my heart goes out to the uh, Sanguian family. Uh, tomorrow's the 15-year anniversary of this. They're a great family. The daughter I met was a, was a wonderful human being. She would probably have done great things with her life, and unfortunately, it was snuffed out. I want to thank all of the great detectives that worked on this case, include the Crime Scene Unit, the 7-5 Squad, Brooklyn North Homicide Squad, Taru, uh, probably too many to mention. The DA's, the Brooklyn DA's office, yeah. the prosecutor did an unbelievable job. This guy, Little John, was pure evil. Putting him in prison uh, was the pleasure of every detective that worked on this case. And uh, that's all basically all I wanted to say. And uh, do you have any parting words, John? Yeah, I, I believe the family was working on. Uh on, or was actually successful in, in developing, uh, so, you know, passing some sort of legislature about background checks and things like that. You know, so, uh, Joe, John, thanks for bringing that. They, they've that made they've yeah. made the most of a horrible situation. When you think about the courage that it, it takes for them to do that, uh, to because you can't not be constantly reminded of how. What you're doing now could have saved your sister's life or your daughter's life, you know, like if somebody had done it before you, you know. So it's got to be a, a very painful mission that they're on, but but they're brave enough to do this for uh, for future generations. And so, uh, you know, uh, I met, 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 you know, she met a horrible demise and uh, they, they're turning something positive out of this, you know, so... Uh, so that that's very important, and I, I thank them for what they do, and and I, I admire what they do. And the, I think what you're referring to is the fact that they changed the laws where bars and restaurants have to do a background check. And actually, I think a bouncer now has to have a state security license to work security in a restaurant. Uh, the old requirements were just that you had a power gym sweatshirt on, and you were big, <laughs> and you were big, you know, and yeah. yeah. Uh, and basically, that's true with a lot of security. Security, they pay security guards very little. And, you know, the old expression, you get what you pay for. Exactly. is so true. And that goes for police work, too. No doubt. So I, I, I think we're going to uh, sign off right now. And for all you folks that listened, that came into the live chat, thank you so much for following Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. John Pellucci, thank you so much for coming on the show. And you know I'll be calling you again. <laughs> your, your, your ex, 
your expertise is needed. And I, I know now that Duty Ron seen you. He's going to be calling me and saying, hey, can you get him on my show? And <laughs> I said, I can't speak for him. I'll, you'll have to call him up. But All right. Well, Bill, it's always a pleasure, really. I, I love what you're doing because, uh, you know, the old saying, keeping it real, this is, keep, this is as real as it gets. You know, you get the, the real cases, the real people involved with them, uh, your real experience. And uh, it's just it's great. It's great what you're doing. Thank you, John. For you folks, on behalf of Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, I'm Bill Cannon. Thank you so much for watching.